Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to USH Med Student. We are live with three medical students this morning. I'm Dr. Rayner, um, doing podcast number two. Super excited about it. Let's go around the room and let's get some introductions. Okay, my name's Weston. I've been on a few of these. Um, I just submitted my application for psychiatry residency yesterday, so it's exciting. Congrats, congrats, seasoned um, veteran. I'm Bryn. I'm a third year med student at Rocky Vista. Excited to talk about some alcohol use today. Yeah. I'm Jared Brooks. I'm a third year medical student at Rocky Vista, interested in psychiatry, and also excited to kind of dive into it. So we've got an interesting topic, an area where psychiatry meets a lot of medicine, which is kind of cool. Um, alcohol use disorders. So we're going to go talk about a few different topics, um, going from prevalence, we're going to talk about neurobiology, some of the brain mechanisms and pathways involved in, in addiction in general, but focusing on alcohol use disorder. We'll go over some alcohol use criteria, talk about intoxication and withdrawal syndromes, um, and then go even into like more long-term treatment of alcohol use disorder, how to combat that long-term. Uh, let's go ahead and start off who had our first topic uh, talking a little bit about like prevalence of alcohol use disorders they look at a lot of things in this study they assess alcohol use drug use psychiatric disorders risk factors and consequences so it's interesting to see how things have increased over the last 11 plus years um, from the first study in 2001 we saw an increase of alcohol use by 72.7 percent increase in high-risk drinking uh, by 12.6% and alcohol use disorder by 12.7%. So quite a big increase in all three of those categories. Interestingly enough, in the last study, some of the risks that came out, um, younger age, unmarried or single, um, they did see education was not an indicator, which was kind of interesting. And there was more alcohol, high-risk alcohol abuse in higher incomes, which is things like drinking and driving but more dependence in lower incomes. Also, with the COVID-19 pandemic recently happening, um, it will be interesting to see how alcohol use kind of changes. Um, it's been reported through big events that occur like the Great Depression and like epidemics that drinking usually increases. We haven't seen a lot of data come out of that yet, um, but we have seen that alcohol sales jumped by 3% in the first year of the pandemic and about 25% of people drink more than usual. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, it also, there's a study that came out recently, I think from the University of Buffalo, um, that drinking habits increased by 23 point, or 22.8% um, during the COVID pandemic and that people who increased their drinking habits had higher rates of mental health symptoms, including anxiety, depression, PTSD, and stress. And then finally, just touching on the cost of alcohol use, because it's I think it's kind of like hard to put in what does this like really mean for society. Um, the CDC reports that um, excessive alcohol use in 2010 cost the American economy $249 billion, and that includes things such as healthcare, workplace productivity, collisions, and the criminal justice system. So definitely a big problem, and it seems with the increasing numbers that it's going to be, become more of an issue. Absolutely. When you think of like risk of, of like what's going to kill individuals at certain ages in their life, right? You get past the pediatric population and right before, like obviously you get 
heart disease, like in the 50s, right? That whole span of like being a teenager on through like your, your 20s, 30s, and 40s, the highest risk thing that you can basically die from is accidents, right? And so this alcohol is just like throwing gas on the fire of accidents. So when we think of what we can best do to help our patients at that age group, like survive and be healthy, limiting their alcohol use and making sure that if they are drinking alcohol, doing it in safe situations is really, really key. Um, makes you like realize why prohibition was a thing and thought about back in the day. It's <laughs> unfortunate how bad of a failure it was. Um, but this is a big problem. This is a big problem. It costs us a lot of money, costs a lot of lives. Um, and anyone who's like treated people with alcohol use disorder, it really is like a hard thing to, to get over. So yeah, great, great information, great information. Um, Let's hop into neurobiology of addiction. Talk about kind of addiction in general, but also focusing on some alcohol use disorder stuff. Yeah, I was uh, looking into an article uh, by uh, Gilpin and Coop in 2008. I kind of go over various pathways. Kind of the two pathways that are really highlighted was this uh, mesolimbic pathway, which kind of includes that, that ventral tegmental area or BTA in the nucleus accumbens. Uh, kind of that pathway, or that's kind of considered like the reward pathway. Uh, another pathway that was kind of looked into really heavily was um, kind of the brainstem to the central nucleus of the amygdala, which is kind of considered, in the paper was talked about as the stress pathway. So kind of interesting things um, is that within that reward pathway, you have this kind of dopamine, uh, dopaminergic neurons that are kind of activating within the nucleus accumbens, and you have these kind of interneurons that are gabinergic that are within the BTA, you also have these kind of uh, opioid peptide releasing neurons that are also kind of modulating the system as well as doing direct um, stimulation on the nucleus accumbens, as well as also some uh, glutaminergic cells onto that nucleus accumbens. And so what uh, they kind of found out was through uh, a lot of mouth studies and, and kind of patterns like that, that alcohol was kind of stimulating this GABA-A receptor um, that was actually inhibiting the VTA's neuron, interneurons, so kind of inhibiting the inhibitor. Um, and so causing an increased release of dopamine within the nucleus accumbens, kind of stimulating that activity. Um, but they also kind of, a little further, they found that it might have actually had an effect on these opioid peptides as well as kind of directly. And so kind of, uh, in a way, it was attacking at, at two fronts. And then it also found to even decrease uh, glutaminergic um, activity onto the nucleus accumbens, which I thought was kind of interesting because usually glutamate's very excitatory. Uh, so that was kind of an interesting finding in that paper. Um, and then they're really highlighting this reward pathway was very prevalent in the initial stages of alcohol use is uh, before dependency sets in. It's kind of these positive reinforcement of the uh, alcohol uh, with like the behaviors of the euphoria, uh, kind of the feeling that people are enjoying the consumption of alcohol and, and a lot less so uh, later on once dependency does establish. Um, and then kind of going into that, that uh, stress pathway, uh, big uh, kind of neurotransmitters here were actually cortico corticotropin releasing factor, which um, what I had heard about, I was thinking more of the, uh, the HPA access uh, kind of deal with cortisol. And so it's kind of interesting to see it in a kind of a different function. Uh, there's also a lot of norepinephrine uh, synapsing on these kind of GABA interneurons within the amygdala, uh, centered around the central nucleus in the amygdala. Uh, from our previous course, we always kind of think of amygdala as, as fear, but it's also emotional regulation. And so um, with alcohol, uh, they've actually found there's an increased 
amount of this corticotropin releasing factor uh, causing a kind of increased uh, stimulation here. And so um, they're thinking that this is kind of more of the negative reinforcement that happened with alcohol withdrawal. So when people have um, alcohol use disorder, that when they stop drinking, they have these withdrawal effects and uh, then the drinking can be tried to avoid those kind of negative effects that are kind of physical and emotional. And uh, the thought is that this pathway is kind of highlighted much more heavily in the uh, post-dependency state. Um, and so, and then uh, sometimes you'll even see, another thing they kind of talked about was these kind of comorbid psychiatric illnesses, uh, like depression and bipolar disorders, where people were actually using alcohol uh, more heavily in those situations. And I, I think a lot of that ties to that, um, the work on the GABA-A receptor, which is very similar to like that of a benzodiazepine. And so kind of self-medicating with the alcohol. Um, so it's just a little bit about those kind of main pathways that are involved. Uh, a little tidbit about patterns of use. A lot of these studies are kind of done with uh, rat or mouse models where they kind of train these, um, the, the rodents to understand a certain feeling after self-administering with a, uh, a pedal. And so once they've kind of been trained, they kind of see their pattern of use um, and see if they're more likely to hit the pedal or not. And what they found with, um, with alcohol is that they actually had this kind of sensitization of this euphoria that in the early stage they were kind of um, more likely to hit it and, and were definitely self-administering, which is kind of showing evidence of a physiologic addiction. Um, but then uh, they actually started to hit the pedal more often uh, to hit that certain level uh, which is kind of evidence of that tolerance that people can exp uh, experience. And just a little bit about uh, use of them. I do have a little more information about the, each individual uh, neurotransmitter systems. We'd like to get into that. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's pause for a second. I want to highlight a few few pieces you touched on there, which I think are super interesting. Why do we study the neurobiology and the neurobiological mechanisms of these disorders? Really, because it can implicate our understanding of, of treatment. Right, um, these new discoveries about the the opioid peptides that are involved and the corticotropin releasing factor. We're going to talk about some treatments here that are becoming have been coming out and going to be utilized probably more more heavily down the road, directly affecting these systems. And it was really the understanding of the neurobiology that led people to try some of these other treatments that we're going to talk about down the road. Um, so again, it seems like really like oh why are we talking about complicated stuff like this? So important in our in our ability to be able to really treat these disorders long-term. Um, a couple other big highlights that uh, I love the idea of the, you know, the, the addiction acutely is a lot different than the addiction long-term, right? And the brain changes actually from that acute euphoria, awesome feeling you get from those first few drinks you have, maybe even like, you know, do, do a few benders on the weekends and man, you're having a good time to where now you go into daily drinking, it becomes not very fun, right? And this becomes now more about like, I just need to have a drink in the morning to not be violently ill and to not just be miserable, right? Um, and that's, that's really the stages of addiction we see with all on, uh, all these disorders with, with substance use, right? Starts out with being this really awesome high, people are chasing that high for a long time and they get into this chronic use and it's really just they're using then to just feel normal which is a sad, sad state to be in when you have to use drugs to just feel like you can function at all. Um, 
the stages, so there is that physiological withdrawal that you go through with, within the first few days that can definitely drive drinking behaviors. And there's also the coin, the, the, the phrase has been coined hyperkatifia. And this is really the emotional dysregulation that occurs long term after you do, after you're using any kind of substance for, for months, right? And this, this withdrawal syndrome of the hyperkatifia, it really is like emotional dysphoria. And the dysphoric state can actually last for months. So while the physiological state, we treat that, we get the person out of the state of physio physiological withdrawals, we wonder, like, why doesn't detox just work, right? People should just walk out of the detox center and be like, oh, I'm good, feeling physiological better, uh, don't need to drink anymore, don't need to use substances anymore. This hyperkatifia stage, this dysphoric stage where they just feel miserable last for months. And this is often what returns people finally back to drinking. Like, gosh, I still feel like crap. I need to go feel better. Um, so this is really the stage that we need to address as, as clinicians, helping individuals cope with this state of hyperkatifia, as well as hopefully develop some better medications that we can use for, for that state of dysphoria that occurs. Um, any other comments from, from the neurobiology system so far from you guys? Nope. Let's dive into the neurotransmitters then. Yeah, so um, kind of after an overview, we'll go a little bit more in detail with uh, different pathways. Kind of starting off with that reward pathway, you got to talk about dopamine. Uh, so it's a lot of times is associated with this kind of motivation that's early in that alcohol intoxication and even that anticipation when someone has dependence and they see like a bottle, they don't even have to like touch the bottle that you can just see an image of it and they actually get that increased dopamine release. Um, and so they're really kind of seeing the evidence of that motivation to kind of relapse, even if you're not actively drinking. Um, and they kind of found actually, it was interesting later in the paper, they were talking about um, something you cannot do um, with humans, obviously, but in the mouse, they would actually inject antagonists into the nucleus accumbens against dopamine. And it actually found that it was blocking that kind of effect where the rodents weren't getting that uh, increase of dopamine and actually having that increase wanting to craving, uh, so to speak. Um, but also interesting, even though this kind of pathway, kind of like Hanger had a little bit on this, that this might be the pathway, uh, if they have a lesion, uh, mouse leaves when they had a lesion, this mesolimbic system, it actually didn't stop the behavior completely. Uh, so kind of evidence that there is some other mechanisms out there that's causing this. And, um, and then kind of another thing is they found that when uh, these rodents were in withdrawal, they actually had decreased dopamine within that uh, VTA and the lupus accumbens. Uh, so kind of showing that uh, now you're kind of deficient, uh, so to speak, and now, like uh, Dr. Rainer, you were saying earlier, now you're trying to kind of get back to that normal level. Um, a little bit about opioid. Uh, they're kind of, they, there's kind of belief that opioids are involved in this positive reinforcement as well, uh, due to the euphoria that opioids are kind of known for. Um, and, it, and it also interacts with that dopamine system as well, um, as we kind of talked a little bit before with the um, pathways. But they've also found um, actually increased amount of opioids in the nucleus accumbens itself. So there is some direct um, activation there. And there's some interesting mouse knockout study where they actually knocked out the mu opioid receptor specifically, and it actually stopped these rodents from self-administering their alcohol. Um, and, and so kind of the thought of that behind uh, using medications, I'm talking about like naltrexone uh, that we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and then kind of um, where you're potentially limiting that rewarding behavior. Uh, a little bit about GABA. Uh, so like I said, alcohol kind of stimulates GABA-A, which is usually a, can be a postsynaptic chloride channel, kind of usually hyperpolarization. Um, 
a lot of the GABA that was kind of talked about was in the amygdala, which is that emotional regulation. Um, and they actually found that you could target the alpha-1 subunit of GABA-A uh, within this uh, structure called the ventral pallidum, which is the basal ganglia, which actually interacts a lot with the uh, amygdala. And it could actually suppress the drinking that they're going to do. Um, kind of interesting uh, little uh, bit there. And then um, they kind of found some other things that uh, maybe alcohol has effect on these uh, neuroactive steroids that kind of regulate how much GABA. And so with that, you can kind of see um, Whenever you do like steroid or gene transcription, so you have prolonged effects, which could be something contributing to that long effects of alcohol behavior, and and we'll get a little bit into a little bit of the uh, structural changes you can see. Um, and I, I also saw, I just wanted to talk about this a little bit because we're talking about GABA. Um, GABA B is usually presynaptic. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it's we have potassium. Um, it's usually uh, inhibitory as well. And they actually found that um, the agonist baclofen, which uh, I believe is usually like, um, I believe it's usually muscle spasms and stuff like that. Um, they actually found that there's a little bit of evidence of increased time for a relapse uh, using this uh, when people are already abstinent, um, which is just kind of an interesting uh, bit I found in there. Um, but so far, I, I haven't found any kind of further evidence of using baclofen that was any kind of uh, promising data. A little bit like glutamate, you got your NMDAs and your uh, this other metabotropic glutamate receptor 5. Um, alcohol antagonizes the MDMA and this glutamate channel uh, within the uh, striatum, uh, which is the kind of a constellated structure, including the ducal accumbens. Um, and an interesting bit uh, here, kind of talking about the prolonged effects of alcohol, is that they found that MDMA receptors are involved in neuroplasticity. And so having actual structural changes and synaptic changes, kind of long-term changes that you're going to see. And so it's kind of possible, um, another contributing factor of how you're having these long-term effects, even after the physiological uh, issues are gone. A um, little bit about uh, serotonin. Um, there's a thought that uh, serotonin would play a bigger role in alcohol use disorder, because um, they found that it does potentiate the 5-HT3 receptor and can that can lead to increased dopamine in the reward pathway. Um, but they tried, and they, they did find some rat studies that uh, this serotonergic compounds, like SSRIs and stuff, did have a little bit of help in rats. Um, but I looked at a Cochrane review, and there's a little bit of evidence that um, they could lower the number of drinks per day. I think the mean difference is like about, about one drink. Um, and so, I mean, but the confidence interval went all the way down to like half a drink. So. It's not, not super promising. I haven't really seen much evidence after that. Um, uh, we want to pause here, we can or I can go a little bit into the stress circuits. Yeah, right, let's pause real quick there just for a second. I think touch on a, a few of the highlights there. Um, one, yeah, just talking about mouse models, I think this is a, um, one of the areas in psychiatry that animal models are are very uh, reliable, right? I think in some of our other models for like depression, we have the swim test with the mice that we put the rats in water, right? And they can swim, and if they swim longer, that's indicative of like some kind of antidepressant effect, right? Somewhat a, a good model for depression. Um, the rat doesn't want to die, and it can fight for longer. Um, but I think this this addiction pathway, right, in animals we can physiologically addict an animal to a substance. And I think we can pretty reliably understand and believe that if the animal is pressing that lever more, it's addicted to that substance. And that if we can then 
introduce something into the system that stops the animal from participating in that behavior, that's pretty good evidence that that should be something that helps, you know, physiologically to stop the stop the use. So, yeah, I guess where I'm getting at is is I think there's a lot of work to be done in substance use disorders off these animal models, and exciting. It's exciting because there is a lot of uh, some good data about some new treatments that are out that potentially could could be beneficial in there. Um, yeah, any other highlights, I guess, off the neurotransmitter systems that you guys thought were just interesting? I think is um, one bit I didn't talk about that was kind of another uh, way they monitor it is that they have like electronic stimulation mm -hmm. in a rewarding area, and then that they could actually, um, it would be augmented with alcohol, or if you had an area that was, um, had negative kind of effect on them, you could actually have uh, it could be associated with the withdrawal, and so that was like an. I just thought it was kind of interesting that, like, how they determine that area. Uh, just a little extra bit that I thought was interesting. Yeah, that is super interesting. Yeah. A little bit on the NMDA receptor pathway. So, a really important system in a in a process called long term potentiation, um, and it's really the NMDA receptor uh, that regulates what behaviors and neuron systems we keep and what ones we get rid of. Um, so it's really by that, that glutamate pathway through that MDA that if we start to engage in a new behavior and a, or a new, a new um, habit, I guess is a good way to put it, it's really the NMDA receptor that preserves those neurons. And um, you guys might have heard the, the neuroscience saying neurons that fire together, wire together, right? So if we repeatedly engage in a behavior over and over and over, we know that that behavior becomes easier to engage in. It's really this NMDA pathway, long-term potentiation, that preserves those neurons, makes them really strong, really what fixates individuals on these uh, um, behaviors of alcohol use and other, other substance use disorders. So interesting pathway to understand if, you know, if we could deconstruct those, those pathways that are really, really, really hard and fast in, in individuals with substance use disorder, I think we could potentially have another treatment modality and another pathway to be able to intervene. So, yeah, just an interesting idea. Absolutely. A little bit um, in the stress circuits, uh, talking a little bit about uh, corticotropin releasing factor. Uh, it says in using the hypothalamus. Um, they found in rat studies that he had with uh, rat studies with alcohol dependence, they had increased uh, CRF in the amygdala with withdrawal. And so, and then when you antagonize the system, it actually kind of suppresses this anxiety-like behavior that they would have with withdrawal. And then uh, found out that, uh, through another uh, source that this neuropeptide YY, um, which I remember usually learning in kind of GI uh, hormones like that. Uh, but they kind of, it's kind of like an opposite of CRF. Um, and they actually overlap with the distribution. And kind of agonism there causes the same effects that you would see with antagonism CRF. So agonism, the uh, neuropeptide YY, you get reduced anxiety. You'd have this decrease in their uh, dependent behavior, uh, that are dependent um, kind of actions you would see in the amygdala with this uh, RAS within withdrawal. This is kind of a interesting that they had, the, they almost seem to kind of buffer each other. Um, and lastly, they uh, looked a little bit at neurokinin 1. Um, and uh, in, when they actually did a study in humans that they antagonized the NK1 receptor uh, with uh, humans with AED, and they actually had reduced cravings and this kind of neuroendocrine response to cues. And, um, and they, they call them uh, cues to negative effective uh, images. Just, I had to look that up because I wanted to make sure I was understanding it, but just anything causing uh, kind of fear, anxiety, 
any kind of, I guess, uh, bad feelings. Um, and that's kind of uh, kind of the overview of all the different neurotransmitter systems. Definitely a lot of uh, potential targets for future therapy. Um, kind of the only like limitations that, that I saw in a lot of these that they were testing it by like doing direct injection within a brain structure, and so I think it would uh, most likely operate differently if they did like an oral medication or even an IV. Um, so definitely some, but it's some interesting interplay there. It's interesting. It's interesting. Lots of cool stuff. This is the in-depth stuff, but I think it's really important to understand. And you guys aren't going to be tested on this on the shelf, right? So it's not like high yield. Um, but I think when you guys get into practice, especially, you know, you guys who are going to psychiatry, this is really important stuff to understand because a lot of our treatments down the road are going to be impacting these systems and we're going to have to understand how they work. So any other info? Yeah, just uh, quick about uh, structural changes. Uh, chronic exposure, yeah. you'd have a little bit of some neurodegeneration decreased brain volumes um, in uh, structures like the cerebellum, the amygdala, and uh, the prefrontal cortex. Um, prefrontal cortex, we kind of learns a lot about the uh, decision making. So there's kind of thought that maybe that this um, could be affecting the drug-seeking behavior that you can see in uh, substance use or in alcohol use uh, disorder uh, particularly. And there's a little bit of a recovery of absence, but that's not complete. Um, and just kind of maybe wonder if um, I didn't see any indication of this, but you know, it, it kind of reminded me of like TMS where they look at the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, and I'm curious that if there's ever going to be any studies to kind of look at maybe another treatment modality uh, with that, because I think um, sometimes when you're having uh, amygdala dysfunction, you can actually have your prefrontal cortex kind of modulate that, and so just uh, I didn't see anything particular in my search about it, but just kind of a curious thought. It's an active area of research for sure. They're trying to figure out which systems to modulate um, to be able to modify those the, the systems uh, for alcohol use disorder specifically. They just did approve TMS, and I think it's deep TMS, so it's not actually the, the superficial RTMS, but um, I can't remember what, what coil they use for the deep TMS, but it's stimulating deeper brain structures, I think, more in the nucleus accumbens um, and that... Um, that reward pathway, and they uh, they did it pretty good evidence that it helps in alcohol in tobacco use disorder. Um, so yeah, I think it is FDA approved for for tobacco use disorder. And I think now that they're unlocking the pathways to one form of addiction, I think it's just a matter of time before they can dial it in and probably figure it for some other ones. So kind of exciting stuff. And I think that's uh, everything I got for the neurobiology. Good, that was really thorough. That was really good. Um, any other comments about the neurobiology? I just think it's interesting, like, how complex this stuff is and, like, mimics how complex alcohol use disorder is to treat and all other use disorders, just all of the integrated systems. It's right. Hard. The brain is super confused, just like we're talking about. It's like, oh, glutamate is usually the, the excitatory neurotransmitter, mm -hmm. but if it's ex if it's exciting an inhibitory neuron, mm -hmm. it's an inhibitor, <laughs> right? So it's like, it's like, and then that's just one neurotransmitter system, right? We're thinking about five different neurotransmitter systems that are just involved in alcohol use disorder and depending on what area of the brain they're being used in they do different things mm -hmm. and so it gets really complex really fast and hard to understand um, it's amazing that we even have as much knowledge as we do in all seriousness but the technology is advancing we continue to learn more which is which is awesome all right our next topic the criteria okay is that our next topic that is the next topic so 
Criteria, um, I mean, as with everything in the DSM, there's just like a ton of different criteria that can, met, can meet. Um, when I'm interviewing patients and listening to them, some of the things I just kind of keep an eye out or an ear out for is, uh, you know, is their alcohol use increasing? Um, have they had a hard time quitting? Do they notice that it's an issue in their life or have other people commented on it being an issue in their life? So that's kind of just like the quick and rough things that I look out for. But um, in the DSM-5, you know, it gives some very specific criteria that I'll just run through here real quick. Um, gives us a list and they need to at least meet two of these within a 12 month period. So um, alcohol taken in a larger amount um, or over a longer period of time than was originally intended, um, a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control their alcohol use, a great deal of time spent in activities uh, necessary to abstain alcohol use um, or recover from its effects, um, if they have increased cravings or strong desires or urges to use alcohol, um, recurrent alcohol use resulting in failure or failure to fulfill a major role um, in their life, such as work, school, or home, uh, continued alcohol use despite having um, persistent social or interpersonal problems caused by alcohol or made worse by alcohol, recurrent alcohol use in situations where it may be physically dangerous, um, such as drinking while driving, um, alcohol use is continued um, despite the knowledge that they have a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological issue that is known to have been caused or made worse by alcohol. Um, so that was a big mouthful, but just once again, the qu quick and dirty, is there an increased amount of alcohol in their life? Have they had issues um, or difficulties quitting using the alcohol? Or have they or others noticed issues in their life, um, such as work or relationships, made worse by alcohol? And then there's the severity ranking, so mild, if they just have two or three of those, moderate, four to five, severe, six plus of those symptoms. That is the DSM criteria. But I think, you know, in general, any physician, you know, primary care, psychiatrist, odds are you're not going to be like checking, asking like 12 questions in a row. So there are some screening tools available. Um, I think the most common one I saw is the Audit C score. Um, and it asks three questions and based off the answer, they, the patient gets a score. So the questions are how often do you have a drink containing alcohol? How many drinks do you have on a typical day when you drink? And how often have you had six or more drinks on one occasion within the last year? Um, and I think it's interesting, um, the thing I looked at said, you know, women, if they have a score of three or more at the positive men, score of four or more. I just thought it was super interesting how they make that dis that distinction between uh, men and women. I don't know why it's there. I think it would be interesting to see why it's there and if it's still needed. It's a great question. We could have a whole podcast on the, the alcohol, like the, the, how alcohol differs in terms of like how it impacts different genders, male and female. Um, women are more sensitive to the effects of alcohol. Women seem to be um, more quick, not just to, to become intoxicated, but to develop 
illnesses a result of, of, of alcohol use. Um, a lot of that is actually the, um, even the enzymes to break down alcohol, right? I can't remember, alcohol dehydrogenase. Mm-hmm. Um, men have more of that in their gut and in their stomach, mm-hmm. whereas women have like hardly any of it in their gut. So men are already breaking down and metabolizing alcohol when it hits their gut, doesn't need to like go through the rest of their system. Women don't have that. So you could almost say like men are like built more to drink alcohol and consume more alcohol. Um, that's why the, that's the increased point. risk. Okay. Um, yeah. So it is, it is a, it's a, there are biological differences, right? And it's good that we have these screeners to detect it because if we use the same criteria, we wouldn't be catching all the women that are having issues with alcohol use for sure. Um, some other, yeah, interesting, interesting facts about the, uh, the alcohol use criteria. So those are all really sensitive markers. Um, so when you catch someone within that sensitive test that you do, right, that screener, you got to get more specific then because you're going to obviously have a lot of false positives of individuals that are going to test positive, right? I think most people that probably drink alcohol, you ask them like a couple questionnaires and like, yeah, is it a problem, right? Do we actually diagnose that individual with an alcohol use disorder? Not all the time, right? The idea is you got to catch them with the screener and then really do a thorough assessment. Okay, well, let's dive into the, to the, to the criteria and see if this person actually um, meets criteria for DSM uh, use. Um, and it's definitely going to like whittle out a ton of people, right? Why do you guys think, so the, the DSM criteria, there's two criteria that make mild or alcohol use disorder mild, right? You only have to have two criteria. Why do you think it's so low? Why do you think that, that's so sensitive of a, a measure that we use to be able to diagnose somebody with an alcohol use disorder? One of the reasons I was thinking of is, okay, if this person's exhibiting two, I got to keep an eye out on them to see if they exhibit more later on or are there others that they're maybe not telling me about um so i think having a low threshold can be good in the way that it can catch potentially more people who may be hiding some of the rest of their disorder or um giving me a kind of a red flag of like okay i gotta make sure i follow up on this patient next time i see them because they you know met the criteria for mild Let's just make sure it either stays mild or, or doesn't get any worse. Right. No, that's a really good, really good point because it very likely if they're if they're already mild, right? It likely it could progress. You want to keep tabs on. That's a good thought. Do you have another thought? Yeah, I was I was thinking I was wondering because um, a lot of the criteria are kind of either um, kind of losing control on the consumption or some variation of impact um, or uh, kind of like dysfunction that can happen occur from it, and so I'm wondering if they kind of spread out all these different questions or be a little bit specific is if you just ask like oh does alcohol impact in your life people might not think it is but once they're hearing a very specific scenario like oh i guess actually i have done that and uh, maybe it's kind of how complex we were talking about the neurobiology is also the behavior is very complex and maybe having these wide criteria can help capture more people earlier on uh, versus when they're all severe for sure like the, the number one key for all health right across Every spectrum is early detection, early intervention, right? That's how we, we have better health outcomes. And so this allows us to be able to, one, catch them early. Two, the big one is facilitate treatment. Um, insurance companies and, and just anyone in general is not going to let me treat someone for alcohol use until I can diagnose them with an alcohol use disorder. So if someone comes to me and they say, I only have two criteria, I only have dependence and withdrawal. Those are the only two symptoms I have. But I want treatment, I need treatment, I need help. 
how sucky would it be as a doctor to like, oh, sorry, like we have to wait until you get three more criteria before we can diagnose you with an alcohol use disorder. Then we can intervene and treat you. That's not what we want to do. We want to, if someone presents with symptoms and they want treatment, we want to get them plugged into treatment. We want them to be able to access treatment, right? That's why that, that, that threshold is so low, that if someone walks in the door, we want them to be able to get in early, get in, get in treatment, get it, get, them, get it taken care of right before it becomes a huge, huge problem. Yeah, I think with that, I think it's a good point to catch them early because we, you know, we know it affects the liver, affects the whole rest mm -hmm. of the body. It's also going to affect their interactions with other people, potentially impacting the mental and physical health of their family members, their children. Um, and so I think, yeah, early detection, early intervention is the best way to go. Absolutely. We know alcohol touches every cell in the body, right? So it's impacting our health physically. Also mentally, we didn't talk a whole lot in the NISARC study, a little bit about how um, there's a ton of comorbid psychiatric disorders that go along with alcohol use. And across the board, they are all exacerbated by alcohol use, right? Alcohol use makes them all worse. Uh, so yeah. And it was actually, I forgot to touch on this, but when they were looking at comorbidities with things like depression, anxiety, alcohol use was, was the number one. Yeah. No surprise, right? Yeah. No surprise. It's actually a depressant. Physically, yeah. it's depressant. You drink enough alcohol chronically enough, you are going to be depressed. Yeah. Um, so moving over to the criteria for intoxication and withdrawal, um, the DSM criteria for intoxication, I think is, I don't know, obviously more specific than, you know, if you were to just look at someone or take their blood alcohol level and be like, oh, yes, this person's intoxicated. Mm -hmm. But... Um, DSM says recent ingestion of alcohol, clinically significant problematic behavior or psychological changes like inappropriate sexual or aggressive behavior, um, impaired judgment or lability that occurs during or shortly after ingestion. Um, one or more of the following signs or symptoms develop during or shortly after alcohol use like slurred speech, incoordination, unsteady gait, nystagmus, impairment in attention or memory, stupor, or even coma. And of course, signs and symptoms are not better attributed by another medical or psychological condition, which is kind of common across all DSM criteria. So um, I think those very like plainly lay out what people see when someone's intoxicated. Um, but it was just kind of nice to have them listed out. It is really helpful. I think it's also important to look at blood alcohol levels primarily because you guys might see this when, when you get into training or if you've already seen it like emergency rooms, people come in and their blood alcohol level is, you know, 300, 400, 500, and they're still like walking and talking and coherent, right? Mm -hmm. When really like that should be like they're in a coma. Yeah. Uh, when people are drinking chronically, right, the, that they become so tolerant that these people are intoxicated, clearly, but they might not show some of those signs and symptoms. So, um, yeah, kind of using both criteria, I think, is, is, is important to be able to measure that. Yeah, I can think of a patient I saw this summer, blood alcohol level in the 300s, and we were having a good conversation. Right. We were chilling. They're fine. Um, right. And I was like, okay, dang, like if, and they just got transferred to me, and I'm like, okay, if their blood alcohol level is like this, and they're acting like this, what was their blood alcohol level when they got brought into the hospital? Like, what, what was that at? Because... 300 they're still functional what was it at that got them yeah. to the hospital yeah yeah that's a really good point 
huge, huge risk for, for withdrawal, too, for those individuals that are those really, really chronic users. When that alcohol level starts to crash abruptly, they're going to go into some pretty hard withdrawals. Yeah, and I think something that I learned quickly when I was doing new patient intakes um, was just asking, you know, you ask about their substance use, but I would specifically ask about, do you drink alcohol? When was your last drink? Because that is going to tip me off as to, do I need to be worried about other things happening with this patient while I'm, you know, trying to take care of them? Um, I think for the purpose of, like, most students and like the shelf there's kind of just like some timeline things that you need to know um so if you ask a patient hey when was your last drink they say it was somewhere between six hours and 36 hours ago they might have some minor withdrawal um some tremors mild anxiety headache kind of more of those like physiologic symptoms they'll have some gi upset maybe not feel like eating but um overall their mental status will probably be fine um once you get up to um, 48 hours, you know, if they've been a heavy drinker, we kind of worry about seizures at this point. Um, I remember getting questions about like, oh, like you're seeing a surgical patient and they've been in the hospital now for... This question will be on your shelf. Oh, 100%. 100%. And I'm like, 100%. what the heck is a surgery question doing on my psych shelf? And then it's like, oh, I'm, I should be worried about seizures with this patient because they, yeah, have a history of alcohol use. Um, same thing with, um, alcoholic hallucinations. Um, those generally happen between 12 and 48 hours after the last drink. And then the big scary thing that we are afraid of is delirium tremens. That's gonna happen 48 hours to 96 hours after their last drink. That's when patients become delirious, agitated, their heart rate and blood pressure increase, their temperatures increase, they're sweating, and that is, yeah, a problem. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so alcoholic hallucinosis and the withdrawal delirium, for sure. The two big ones that you got to worry about. The withdrawal, withdrawal delirium can be fatal, right? These people can actually go into like states of like status epilepticus, and it can be a big deal, and it's going to be on your shelf. Just get ready for it. So just uh, that question is like 100% of the time on there. So know that. It's usually 72 hours. Like mm -hmm. You'll see that, that magic number of day three, patients start to act unusual, and you kind of already know where, where it's going. Yeah. <laughs> I think I had a almost a very similar on you. They had no mention of alcohol. They just started having like seizures. Right. Were like what? Is it, what was it? And it was like it was DTs. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I was like, oh, they yep. even talk about alcohol consumption. Nope, and they won't. They won't. Because patients sometimes don't talk about it, right? And that's yeah. I think that's what they're trying to tip off is yeah. these patients come in, you don't know, you can't recognize them, and it just happens. You have to be ready for it mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think when someone, you know, what I've seen most commonly used when someone is either. Well, coming in in general, I'd say, but especially with substance use disorders, um, the CWAS score. So it's just kind of like a questionnaire that usually the nurses will check in on them, um, you know, at however, in, at whatever interval we ask them to. Usually I feel like it's like four to six hours. Nurses are asking these questions, but it's just kind of screening for those withdrawal symptoms. Um, so they ask for like, you know, are you nauseous? Have you thrown up? Uh, do you feel like you have a tremor? Do you feel like you're sweating? feel anxious, kind of asking for those lower tier withdrawal symptoms so we can catch it early and get them um, treated. I think most often I've seen used as um, some sort of taper, like a diazepam, lorazepam, or chlorodiazepoxide taper um, for the you know acute patient that we just want to make sure that they're not going to have DTs or 
die on us so we can kind of taper them down and then hopefully get them plugged into longer outpatient term treatment. Yes, yeah, CWAs are, are important. So the, back in the day, before the CWA protocol, right, the, the standard was the patient comes in with, with uh, alcohol withdrawal symptoms and you just start the taper, right? You get them on the three-day, four-day Librium taper and you just schedule all those meds and they, and they go through it, right? What they found is with the CWA, um, overall, if you can do an assessment, one, you address the, the patient's symptoms better because you're actually doing symptom-based dosing and, and like, so you're keeping on top of things a little bit more. But you also end up using less medication overall and patients stay in the hospital a lot less time. Um, you can imagine giving people heavy doses of benzodiazepines, right, over this taper, keeps them incapacitated. Um, maybe if they don't need that high level of dosing, obviously they're gonna be able to get more functional more quickly and be able to get out of the hospital uh, more efficiently. Um, and then obviously there's risk to using benzodiazepines. So we wanna use the lowest effective dose always. So the CWA protocol really should be utilized by every hospital. Um, and if it's not, yeah, implement it. Absolutely, it's pretty easy scale to, to do. And there's subjective symptoms and then objective symptoms. So the nurse is actually also not, not only asking for tremors, but looking and observing for tremors, sweating. Um, they even come, you know, look at the um, pupils and things like that um, to be able to assess how the patient's doing yeah. withdrawal-wise. I think, I think the score is like, oh, if they score over eight, they, they need that treatment. But it, it is nice for those like acute psych hospital situations. Someone comes in and it's like, okay, yes, it's an issue. Also, they are only scoring a one or two. They don't need to stay here that longer. And, you know, we hate to think about this, but we will likely need the bed for someone else. And so we're able to kind of um, expedite that treatment based on the lack of symptoms they're showing as well. For sure, for sure. And I think level of care is an important discussion to have when we're talking about, you know, what detox settings. Um, someone who's going through uh, DTs and then the withdrawal delirium, they really should actually be in the ICU, right? That's the level of care that they need. Um, you don't want to manage that on the medical floor. You don't want to manage that in the psych ward for sure. They need that ICU level of care. Um, other patients, you know, risk of seizure, risk of serious withdrawals, you definitely want them on a, on a, on a medical floor or at least in a psych ward on the inpatient unit. Um, but there is individuals that, can, that are appropriate for outpatient detox that can do this at home, right? And um, there's actually a really good protocol for gabapentin, 400 milligrams three times a day. You can do that for, I think, five days. Um, and individuals do pretty well when there's not a high risk of, of those dangerous outcomes that we, that we talked about. So, um, yeah, not everyone needs to go inpatient for this type of stuff. So determining that level of care is really important. Yeah. Save the system cost. Yeah. And I think for going back to what you said about, like, can this patient be managed at home or on inpatient psych or do they need a higher level of care like ICU? I remember this last summer had a, you know, they're calling, hey, we need to admit this guy over to over to your floor. I'm like, okay, well, let me read what's going on. I'm like, this person does not sound like medically stable. Mm -hmm. And the psych floor, unfortunately, isn't equipped to handle all the issues that are that might come up with this patient. So I'm like, please just like keep them. Right. They did until they're medically stable. Then we will take over care. Yeah, IVs and stuff like that different on a psych ward, right? Like. Yeah. They're choking hazards, and we have to be much more careful. The patient often has to be on a one-to-one -one medical floor, just much more equipped to be able to, to handle that kind of stuff. So really good questions to ask when you're managing a psych unit, a standalone psych unit, to be able to, to figure that stuff out, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about the neurobiology of intoxication with, um, and the withdrawal syndrome, right? So alcohol potentiates GABA, increases levels of GABA in our system. 
chronically long-term, if we increase GABA, it's always going to stay in flux and basically in opposition to glutamate. GABA and glutamate, you can think of like a seesaw, like GABA goes up, glutamate goes down, and vice versa. Um, so when GABA is flooding that system, right, the postsynaptic GABA receptors are going to downregulate. So they're going to be like, you know, really low. In essence, that also is lowering levels of glutamate, so the glutamate postsynaptic receptors are going to be way, way high. Um, and while that person is drinking every day, that, that works, right? Because you've got all that GABA flowing through the system, and the glutamate's um, receptors are upregulated, so even that small amount of glutamate is still, still going through the system. It's all in balance because of the alcohol. All of a sudden, you take away the alcohol, you're now primed for, for what event if we have high glutamate receptors on the other side? Seizure, Seizure right? We're going to get a flood of glutamate through the system. Receptors are way, way, way upregulated, and that's why these individuals are so at risk for severe seizures and especially things like status epilepticus which can be lethal right so it's pretty scary um if there's any other things that we want to talk about in the intoxication i guess let's talk about quick medications you touched on a few of them right and those are the, those are really the big players chlorodiazepoxide lorazepam um, and diazepam you don't really see too many others why do you think those agents are chosen more often than not why don't we use agents like xanax because it could be iv Good point. Good point. It can be IV. I think um, those are, like, especially like chlorodiazepoxides, like very long lasting. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think we touched a little bit earlier, like the benzos and alcohol operate very similarly with the GABAN. So you're kind of helping bring that back to a little bit of balance, but mm -hmm. a longer half life to kind of slowly taper down and allow for that uh, adaptation to happen. Yeah, and that is the key one is it's the long, long half life agents. All those agents are going to be really long half life. Um, all over 12 hour half lives. I think lorazepam is probably the shortest one out of all those with, with around 12 hours. Um, out of those agents, which one is, do you think the most commonly used? Lorazepam, diazepam, chlorodiazepoxide? You guys might not. I'm trying to remember which generic Librium belongs to. Librium, Librium is the yeah, chlorodiazepoxide. Okay. That's the one I've seen most commonly, but I don't know if that was just that hospital that preferred it. You do, and you get in areas and pockets, right? Different people use different practices, so that's probably not the best way to phrase it. Um, I'm trying to ask a specific idea, a, a really specific idea from a really broad question. That's probably a bad way to do it. Um, what I'm trying to get at is there's one drug that um, isn't going to go through the liver because you worry about liver disease in these individuals. So lorazepam. Lorazepam. So yeah, a person coming unknown off the street, especially in a standalone psych hospital, like when I worked at, in residency as covering a detox center, um, I didn't get labs back for like two or three days, right? Like I would get the labs, get the blood drawn, but like I'm not seeing those labs for a while. So I have no idea what's going on with their liver. And I definitely have to be worried about potential liver damage, liver failure, and these chronic alcohol users who are here all the freaking time. Um, in addition, they're usually using other drugs, you know, risk of hep C and all kinds of stuff. Uh, so you worry about these abilities, their ability to metabolize drugs through the, through the liver. And so just safe, safe bet, always trying to use lorazepam for these, for these individuals, just avoids complications. Um, what are the other two? Benzos that are not metabolized through the liver. It's oxazepam and temazepam. Very nice. Nice. Very He's ready. Nice. Ready for the shelf. Yep. <laughs> my cards yep. yep. Very good. Very good. Awesome. Okay. I think we hit everything on intoxication and withdrawal. Is there anything else we wanted to to go over there? That's all I got. Okay. That's all I know. <laughs> I guess one other point I do want to make. Um, 
you're going to start to see protocols more often, and, and, and there was actually just a paper released on this using Depakote for, for seizure prophylaxis in individuals with alcohol use disorder. I will say the evidence suggests that it does treat alcohol use disorder in terms of preventing a seizure. Um, what we know is people going through alcohol withdrawal, there is more than just physiological signs of like seizure that are going to happen, right? There's also really intense anxiety um, and other, other physiologic and then even just emotional symptoms that they're going through, right? I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that the Depakote treats those as well. Um, what I have seen some physicians, they have this attitude in the hospital of these individuals with alcohol use, they deserve to have a miserable time to come in and go through detox, right? Like, then they won't do it again if they have a really rough detox. That is just not true, right? There's no evidence to suggest that. In fact, there's evidence to the counter that individuals, if they do have a really bad um, withdrawal, right, they're just not going to come back and get treatment. That's really what they start doing. Or they go, they go to somewhere else to get treatment. Um, so, so I, in, yeah, in my opinion, uh, we know that benzos not only are going to address the physiological signs of the withdrawal, they're not going to just protect for the seizure, they're also going to address those other miserable symptoms these individuals have of the elevated anxiety, intense restlessness and agitation that also occurs with this with this withdrawal syndrome. So be compassionate and be, be caring about these individuals and when you can generate a, a rapport with these patients, right, that's really what's going to go in the long term of, of helping these people get better. All right, well, let's, we're going to jump into long-term treatments. Yep. Is that our next topic? Yeah. Let's do it. Um, so I've got a couple of analysis here. There's one out of Canada, like this giant like network meta-analysis that so many different drugs. There's that in Calgary, um, and I think a little bit uh, with Boston, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so they they kind of looked at all a bunch of studies, kind of looking at um, abstinence, heavy drinking, uh, and also like how many uh, people dropped out uh, after from adverse events. Um, so I, I was actually a little surprised uh, looking at Naltrexone, I thought it was going to be like this like slam dunk uh, medication, but uh, I was a little slightly underwhelmed by the uh, relative risk because uh, for acid it was only like 1.15 and, and that conference interval almost hit one. So it was almost not even noticeable um, and that was for abstinence. And so uh, Naltrexone, we're talking about like all that cravings, you know, stops the cravings, uh, kind of like what we learned. Um, but, it seemed like kind of overall with this um, giant uh, analysis that it really didn't have a huge effect. It was still positive. Um, and then they also had a reduced um, risk of doing heavy drinking. And um, and the, even for the dropout adverse events, it was the conference interval was, was below one as well. So not really a significant um, dropout for, so I mean, in the kind of the positive, it, it did seem to be pretty tolerable. Uh, I was just kind of using that as a proxy. Uh, I did look at another uh, meta-analysis of JAMA um, that kind of, I got a couple of NNTs here. Um, so the number uh, I needed to treat for heavy drinking, and this was using the 50 milligram uh, oral naltrexone, was 12. And I think, uh, which isn't that, uh, as low as I've seen other, I think, I want to say SSRIs are like five or four. Um, so it was a little discouraging that, you know, only one out of 12 people who prescribed naltrexone would lower their heavy drinking. And then for any absent, it, it was a 20. So like only one out of 20. And then uh, looking through that study, none of the other doses or even the injectable naltrexone had sufficient data to do it. Uh, this was back in 2006. Uh, so, I mean, more data is coming out. Um, there's a little bit of adverse reactions. Uh, big ones, elevated LFT. So you, um, now, trexone, um, you worry about using if someone's having hepatitis. Uh, so, 
And then also if they're using any opiates, you can get precipitation and opiate withdrawal. Um, and then uh, I think other, just general like weakness in the GI set and uh, CKP or other adverse. And I think the only, and then yeah, the opioid uh, use was the only actual contraindication um, for that medication. So overall it was pretty tolerable, but not as, uh, as effective as I was hoping I would find. And, and I think the JAMA meta-analysis had it even worse. I think it was only uh, reduced a risk difference of like 0 0.09. Uh, so, and that was for the most, that was the highest of all the, between the campersate and um, was it disulfiram. And so, or disulfiram. Um, so I was a little disappointed. Um, looking at uh, Vivitrol, uh, it's a long acting inject, injecting, uh, injectable naltrexone. I, I saw one of the papers of $1,300 uh, per injection. It's pretty, pretty pricey. So once a month, uh, peak concentration in three days. Um, the idea was that it would be really beneficial for patients uh, for compliant, uh, for adherence. Um, kind of one of the kind of disadvantages of dosulfiram is that the person has to actively want to take that medication every day for it to be effective. Or, and same thing with naltrexone, where if you have a one month, you're like, okay, I, I have my motivation, I've got my injection, so now if I start to not have that motivation, I'm covered. Um, so I, I found it's the GARBA trial, and uh, it was in JAMA, 624 patients. Primary outcomes are looking at heavy drinking, um, and goal abstinence, and it's uh, lead in drinking. Um, and they're kind of versing a 380 milligram and 190 milligram versus placebo. And uh, one thing I thought was kind of interesting is that um, it was found effective for heavy drinking in men, but not, not a statistically significant effect in women. I just, I was kind of curious how that, um, like I have no understanding of why that would be, but I just, it was kind of an interesting uh, bit that I saw. And then everything else, um, they, the only other um, effect it had was um, for lead in drinking where if it helped people that didn't have this lead in drinking effect. But other than that, it, it really, the confidence intervals weren't really supporting any kind of statistical significance. And it did have a decent amount of uh, side effects, similar to naltrexone, but you had um, injection site reaction. There's also some narrow uh, nasal pharyngitis, and I, I found it interesting that there was some uh, upper respiratory infection, hmm. uh, which not I couldn't find the explanation of that. Um, but overall, um, the uh, kind of effectiveness wasn't really uh, super promising, uh, at least in this. Uh, and this was a study I was reading a review that they said was one of the uh, things that got the FDA approval, I believe. And so just unfortunately kind of like oral naltrexone, but with the added benefit of um, adherence, which could be a problem uh, when people are kind of dealing with substance. Um, I don't know if there's any other thing we talk about naltrexone. Oh, I mean, just, yeah, I think to hit on the point of, of the disappointment, right? That yeah. that it's not it's not a game changer. It's not a... Not a, not a huge difference maker. I think what it is, it's a medication that's tolerable, a medication that if you use the oral formulation, fairly cheap, so you know, low cost intervention and, and low side effects, right? So in a lot of cases, it's more like, why not try that intervention, right? If it, if it could potentially help somebody. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not gonna be the game changer that they were really looking for to treat alcohol use disorder. It's, it's unfortunately, you know, better than a lot of the treatments we have. And so again, it's, while it's no magic bullet, um, gosh, it's better than nothing sometimes. Um, so yeah, I think that's the main reason why the, the, the 
prescriptions of naltrexone still are made for, for alcohol use disorder because of that safety profile, uh, the cost, as well as, you know, the uh, potential benefit that it might do something better than, better than nothing. Um, differences between the men and women is interesting. Um, I think touching just a little bit about on the, the idea of different phenotypes and phenotypic presentations of alcohol use disorder. Um, if you guys look in the literature a lot for, for alcohol use disorder, you'll find two, two different types. In fact, they've broken it up, I think, into actually like five different types now. But even back in the 80s, and I can't remember, Gabor, somebody um, identified these two different phenotypes of, of alcohol use disorders, type 1 and type 2. Um, type 2 seemed to be more associated with males. Type 2 seemed to be more genetic, passed down from, from family members. Um, and type 2 seemed to be more chronic, heavy drinking. There was actually more... Uh, physiologically driven in terms of like there's actually metabolic and, and different markers that, that were used with these individuals that they could tolerate more alcohol. They can just drink more than their counterparts. People really look at this as like this is a different type of alcohol use disorder, right? This isn't type one, you know, not, not as much psychopathology, not as much antisocial personality disorder. This is kind of like a whole different syndrome that we're talking about. So when we talk about different treatments that we're going to use, um, and the psychiatry is going with this with a lot of different um, disorders, right? We're trying to find different phenotypic expressions of depression, anxiety, and to see, hey, does 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 this typical does this treatment work specifically for this phenotype, right? Maybe across the whole board, it's not very effective for all types of depression, but maybe it's effective for this type of depression. And I think that's maybe where we're getting with with the with the now trexone use, maybe seeing it more common in males. That type two is definitely a more common pathology in males, and so maybe we're treating that type two pathology a little better than the type one. Uh, that's just a thought. That's just a hypothesis. Um, but I think the more that we get into psychiatry, the more we're going to try to get into this phenotypic expressions of different disorders and really trying to dial them in. Like, this isn't just alcohol use disorder, and it's all the same, right? This, these are different pathologies that are broken up into one big disorder. Absolutely. Yeah, I found that it was just um, like kind of studying for the shelf. A lot of the um, kind of mental illness was like heterogeneous and just like there might not be one thing but a spectrum. Hundred percent. Hundred yeah. percent. They're like syndromes, right? Yeah. There's, there could be tons of different reasons as to why uh, the etiology of those syndromes. For sure. And I, um, I did find a little bit of data on uh, can't say, uh, on that same meta-analysis. Actually, had a little bit of better effectiveness. Actually, uh, uh, for absence, uh, the uh, relative risk was uh, 1.33, and uh, confidence interval from 1.15 to 1.5 for uh, so a little bit better uh, in this particular uh, meta-analysis. I did find some variation source to source, um, kind of a kind of a disadvantage of this particular analysis. I saw some of the drugs are using open label, which you know has its own drawbacks uh, as well. Uh, for heavy drinking, uh, Campus State had a, a relative risk of 0.78, uh, which was statistically significant, and uh, the dropout rate was uh, it was uh, not statistically significant. Uh, confidence intervals, but uh, the relative risk was 1.31, so still uh, generally pretty tolerated. Uh, kind of looking at our clinical sources, the big like um, kind of S, uh, sorry, side effect is um, diarrhea, kind of like 17%, I think, on up to date. Um, it's kind of like the main side of everything else, kind of like post marketing, like very. Uh, and the only contraindication indication I found was for renal impairment if their creatinine clearance is below 30. Um, and I think the other like kind of caveat is that I think you're supposed to wait for because um, this works by NMDA modulation, and you're supposed to wait for the uh, person to be absent from alcohol before initiating. From what I read, um, 
But I, I couldn't find anything that said what happened if you didn't. You don't have to. Yeah. The best results occurred when they were abstinent. Okay. And so the, you're looking for the best outcomes. And a campersite has the best data for people who want to be abstinent. Now, mm -hmm. not every person getting treated for alcohol use disorder wants abstinence, right? So really identifying your, your patient and what, who's going to be a good candidate for a campersite are those individuals who don't want to drink at all. One of the big hard things about a campersite, um, the dosing. So it's three times a day, 666 milligrams three times a day. That's hard for anyone to keep up on, right? Let alone like someone who's got alcohol use disorder and probably got a lot of going on in their lives, right? Um, so that's, in these, in these studies, a lot of times they'll use, you know, dosing that's like very metered out, like they're, they're making sure the patients get their meds. That becomes a problem when you're going to real world dosing and use of this medication. Like people just don't keep up on it. And there's actually some pretty good evidence to show that even getting missing one dose a day, there is a statistical significance of a, of a drop in outcome if you miss a dose a day on average. So you got to make sure your patients are going to be here. And this is where like setting alarms on your phones and that kind of thing is going to become big time, making sure they're getting all those doses. And I think, um, I want to say I read somewhere that Camp State was also uh, uh, looking into kind of a long-acting injectable. Hmm. I might be mistaken, but That'd be cool. I think a lot of the medications for alcoholics are we're trying to transition to a long-acting injection, which would definitely help with, like, three times a day, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I do want to talk a little bit about this uh, Project Combined study. Um, and so, kind of, before I read it, I was thinking, oh, this would probably be good. You know, naltrexone has some effect, efficacy, campersate has efficacy. There are different mechanisms. Maybe we'll have, like, a synergistic, you know, effect. Um, but reading through the study, that was not the case, actually. Um, so this is a pretty large study. I think it was like 1,300 about patients, 150 in each group. And like uh, the groups were kind of separated into, you had naltrexone and med medical management, campesate medical management, naltrexone and a campesate with medical management, placebo and medical management. And they had all those groups again, but with the addition of uh, cognitive behavioral intervention, uh, just a little uh, kind of explanation about the where medical management is kind of having a doctor's office visit where they do motivation interviewing, they're talking about effects of alcohol, giving your medications, kind of have that. There's, I think it's up to like 45 minute uh, visit, uh, which is definitely longer than a primary care visit would be. Um, and so, um, and then the CBI was kind of using uh, a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy, the 12 step program that I think uh, Brent's going to talk about later, uh, and then also motivational interviewing. Um, and, and all and, and so, so they're having kind of multimodal uh, treatments there, and then the last group was uh, CBI with no placebo, no uh, treatment, just CBI by itself. Um, and they did this for 16 weeks, and they actually did a follow up a year later. And so, uh, the interesting thing was that 16 weeks, um, CBI alone was one of the most effective. Um, now, Trexone by itself with medical management. And no CBI was actually more effective than if you added the CBI. And both of those were more effective than any other combination, including the naltrexone, the campersate, the medical management, and CBI, which was so counterintuitive uh, to me. I really thought, like, we're really, like, treating the whole person here uh, with this. And it just, it at the 16 weeks and the one year, it just absolutely didn't seem to do any better than just the naltrexone or just the CBI. So I was, I was kind of perplexed by that because it's just, a little counterintuitive than what we normally think about, like effective treatment. Such a deflating study. <laughs> yeah. right? Like everyone who was involved in this study, and I've actually list, like listened to some lectures of the of the primary investigators for this study, and like it is just like oh, <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Um, 
yeah, the, 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 the moral of the story is, is that we still try. This isn't a study where I think we base a lot of our decision making off of and say, no, like, sorry, the data says, like, we shouldn't use CBI added to, to naltrexone. It's not as effective. No, like if the patient is going to willingly participate in the CBI, we add the CBI, right? If they're willing to do it, we try it. And, and, and yeah, it's not evidence, quote unquote, evidence based, but this is one of those areas where I think we still use the interventions until we can figure out, you know, more of a gold standard method of treating this. Uh, but yeah, very miserable study. I think the one thing it does tell us is like there is no point in adding naltrexone in a campersade. The one thing they also saw, not only was it not more effective, a lot more dropout and a lot more discontinuation because of added side effects. So not worth it to add both together. Um, and you're absolutely right that everyone was thinking like, oh, different mechanisms of action, you know, a little bit of efficacy here, a little bit of efficacy here. We combine them, we can get both the efficacy, you know, jammed into one one medication. And uh, no, it did not work. It did no, not work. It just did not. Which is really, yeah, it was very unfortunate. Was, yeah. No, you and, and uh, everybody else was uh, <laughs> let down by the results. But oh, yeah. at least we know. At least we know. It's still good data, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I did a little data on uh, that that. See the aldehyde dehydrogenase inhibitor, uh, basically making this awful uh, kind of negative physiologic symptoms if you're having alcohol. Um, a, a lot of things that you'll see, I kind of see on my board stuff and any practice question that has a thing about disulfiram is if someone's taking metronidazole, has that disulfiram. Like, I think every time you learn about metronidazole, yeah. it always pops up. Um, kind of uh, the general adverse effects, events that are. Um, not, I guess, intended um, with the medication. We're all just like post-marking very like low kind of percentage, like dermatitis, uh, hepatic complications and abnormal behavior, kind of like the worst ones I found, but all those I like, found in post-marketing, so kind of low. And then um, this wasn't, we were originally weren't gonna talk about it, uh, I think when we were thinking about the podcast, but in one of the papers I found this uh, topic of topiramate uh, using for alcohol use. And um, the data has been, I would say, in one word, mixed. Um, some found some really, like there was one study that they, the meta-analysis where they did seven studies, they did double blinds, all seven studies were uh, double blind, they didn't, uh, some had abstinence requirements, some didn't, and they actually found some statistically significant reduction in heavy drinking and, uh, and even a little bit of the, um, uh, of the heavy drinking and kind of uh, other markers like GGT and stuff like that, but uh, no effect really in the cravings. Um, and so that was kind of interesting, they were doing 300 milligrams of tofiramate for three months um and i mean to be like you know it's anti-epileptic but it has like so many different mechanisms like gaba and nmdas and uh even calcium uh which kind of like almost like uh, with, like a petin, um which there was a cochrane review that kind of went over all the anti-epileptics and to i think had the best evidence of that review um but in that same meta-analysis i looked up to nothing was really statistically significant on i think there uh, was like uh, risk reduction of 1.27, but it went uh, right up to one, so it just wasn't quite um, statistically significant. And the, but the the kind of big thing is they had a uh, dropout to adverse events is a relative risk of 2.18. Um, so very just was not tolerable for most people. Um, and I think people were kind of excited that maybe this is like another medication, but the tolerability I think I I looked up in clinical uh, uh, trials.gov and I. Saw a couple studies that had some modest benefit, but uh, they're all they're not really a lot going on there that I could see. Uh, yeah. Maybe just the tolerability. Yeah. So yeah, Topamax 
is uh, definitely medication that's considered you know, in a lot of different substance use disorders and kind of, again, mixed data across the board for all of them. I did listen to a pediatric uh, addictionologist and he said if I could have one drug to treat all addictions across the board, I would choose topiramate. And I thought that was interesting. So it's like, well, it might work in like a little bit in all of them, but it doesn't really work well in any of them. Um, but that was that was his his take. So take it with a grain of salt. There is some glutamatergic activity of topiramate. I think that's another thought of why it potentially might work in alcohol use disorder. Um, but yeah, the evidence just just is not there. Other medications have also been studied. We might not touch on things like ondansetron, citalopram, a ton of different SSRIs. Right, have been 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 tried in these. Um, not really, again, mixed data, small, if anything. But, again, like, the the risk is low, right? And especially, like, if your patient has, you know, maybe migraine headaches or you're trying to do seizure prophylaxis to a pyramid or they have depression or some other comorbidity, nausea, to use on Danzatron, right? If they have another reason to try that medication, it's worth putting on board and giving it a try and just seeing if it'll help, right? And I think there was a study that when you have comorbid anxiety and depression, SSRIs were mm -hmm. effective um, in treating the, the comorbid situation. And there was a little bit of like modest benefit to the alcohol, but I, I wouldn't be able to say if that was the treatment itself or the, right. the uh, kind of decrease in the depression or anxiety. Bingo, yeah, and yeah, no one knows. Yeah, Absolutely right. Cool, those are good, good talks. Um, so Jerry kind of hit on more of like the typical treatments. I'm gonna talk about some newer stuff maybe. So first, um, just a pretty big study that came out with psychedelics. Um, first, in general, psychedelics, I'm going to talk about ayahuasca and psilocybin. Um, we're not really sure kind of how these work. We know that their psychedelic effects are due to their like agonism of the serotonin 5H2TA receptor that Jared kind of hit on. Um, but other than that, you know, it could involve like plasticity, like we were talking about, epigenetics, gene expression, things like that. Um, but there's been some studies that come out recently that are kind of cool. Um, ayahuasca, it's kind of hard to study. It has a big like cultural implication. It was used by the indigenous people for hundreds of years for various use disorders and um, just uh, diseases. So most of what we have is like observational um, or surveys. So some study that came out in 2013, they actually observed a traditional ceremony um, and everyone reported that they had reduced alcohol and tobacco and cocaine use afterwards. Um, they did an online survey recently in 2015 and 2016 where they surveyed almost 100,000 people. Um, they asked about the use of several psychedelics, ayahuasca, LSD, um, and interestingly, ayahuasca users reported the greatest um, well-being and less problematic drinking other, like, compared to other psychedelic use. So that was kind of interesting. Um, that one seems like it needs to have more studies go in the future, and I don't really know how that's going to work out. Right, right now it's a Schedule One. Yeah. I still believe in the U.S. So and it's only, I think it's only legal in certain countries for cultural yep. like indigenous yep. use. So I believe there's some like you know areas in the U.S. that you can use it, but you have to be a part of like a very special you know yeah. cultural and religious group. That it has to be it. run by a shaman yeah. or someone who's an expert in ayahuasca. Right. Yeah, very interesting. Um, but I still thought that study was kind of cool. I don't know how great it is, but but um, psilocybin. They did a recent study last year, twenty twenty two. It was the first double blind randomized control trial. Um, there was ninety five patients with a, all with a diagnosis of alcohol use disorder. They were assessed for their percentage of heavy drinking, 
um, percent of drinking days and then drinks per day. They were monitored over a 32 week period where they were administered psilocybin um, or the placebo, which was Benadryl, in two eight hour sessions at week four and week eight. During that time, they were all monitored for eight hours. They were with a therapist who did CBT and motivational interviewing during those sessions. Um, and then they were assessed at the four week period and then at the follow up 32 week period. And pretty good results came out of that. Um, for week four and for the follow up, all the psilocybin group had almost decreased by half in every category, including the percent of heavy drinking days, percent of drinking days, and drinks per day. Um, pretty significant. And really, the only side effects that they reported in the study, there's like a long list that you could look at every side effect, was the elevated blood pressure. Um, but all of that went down, I think, 360 minutes after the treatment. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how, I mean, the one thing they did talk about is like spending eight hours with a patient during one of those sessions. That's going to be pretty time, not to It's a costly effect. intervention, yeah. right? And most likely you're going to have to be doing that in a clinic where they're getting monitored, you know, blood pressure, vital signs, you know, much similar to like ketamine treatments are yeah. right now, except longer. Yeah. So an expensive intervention, but like if you only have to do that a couple times, you know, that's not the end of the world. It's very doable. And if you can get those kind of results, I think it could definitely be worth pursuing. I think the main thing is we need larger scale trials to make sure that those that those results are durable. Yeah. Um, we'll just put a shameless plug for the episode I did a couple weeks ago oh, on psilocybin, yeah. where we talk a little bit more about that as well. Oh, cool. Perfect. I should have had you do this one. <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> Um, and then the last thing I want to talk about is the glucocorticoid receptor antagonist study that came out in 2015. Um, so the theory is that glucocorticoids alter the mesolimbic dopamine signaling, so it amplifies like the positive reinforcement effects of the alcohol and drug abuse. So it's been shown that suppression of the glucocorticoids um, by taking, um, or the, I don't forget what they did, they took out the adrenal plan, I think, and that reduce the extracellular concentration of dopamine. So we've, we've shown that um, if we alter that, we can reduce like compulsive behavior in rats. So what they did in 2015 is they actually took humans um, and they gave them mifeprestone. They gave them 600 milligrams every day orally for a week. And um, it really reduced the amount of alcohol consumption. Um, they had, patients had to abstain from alcohol three days before the dosing period. Um, but the theory, what they saw in the rat model was, it actually doesn't change the amount of glucocorticoid receptor, um, but what it does is there's a phosphorylation of a serine molecule. Hmm. And so the, if, that mo if the serine is phosphorylated, then it increased the glucocorticoid receptor localization and activation. Um, so if we can decrease that phosphorylation, then we can decrease kind of the glucocorticoid activation. So that's the theory in that study. So they came out and there was no side effects reported because you would think with the mifeprestone, because it antagonizes progesterone too, there could be some other things going on. But they actually showed that just with the week after post-following the um, oral intake of the medication that the LFTs went down pretty significantly as well. So their recommendation was a brief one-week treatment of with mifeprestone immediately following acute withdrawal in course with psychosocial treatment may offer a therapeutic approach. 
That's awesome. Yeah. What were the numbers? Did they say about like like the actual improvement? Like what yeah. what percentage showed? Um, they just said there was greater reduction in alcohol cued craving, reduction in number of drinks per week, and drinks per drinking day. So kind of the same okay. as the psilocybin. Okay. But they said it was all significant. I didn't get into the nitty gritty of that. But did it say how many people were in the trial originally? I think yeah, it was a smaller study. Yeah, it was fifty six. Yeah. So again, yeah, a promising treatment. But I just think we need bigger bigger trials and I think they're going to come for sure but again so cool like low risk kind of low low cost intervention that we could do right after a detox mm -hmm. to prolong the effects and then improve individuals drinking habits like that's awesome so I think that one's going to hopefully that study's in 2015 I don't know why they haven't pushed it through and done more studies and released more data but yeah maybe COVID jammed them up but exciting to see more stuff come out about that keep yeah. an eye out um, and that's it for our treatment things. Cool. So, next is the psychosocial. Um, I'll just quickly touch on this because there's a lot. I think this it's could nice. probably be a whole podcast Absolutely. in itself. Um, and the literature is just, it's different for, you know, every study says that they're the number one <laughs> treatment. Yeah. Um, so I kind of use UpToDate for this, and UpToDate says that clinical trials have not found any one intervention to be superior to others. Um, I think it's CBT has been, is the most used and empirically supported behavioral treatment. And even in the NISARC data, it said that the most important um, like barrier to treatment is stigma and attitude, which you talked about with physicians. So, and I think even up to date agrees that it really is personalized depending on what you need. They go into a list, which I'll touch on, and where they look at like personality or education or finances and like maybe what specific treatment would be better for them. But I think ultimately it's doing the treatment consistently, um, having good access and just kind of staying with it. So they said for motivation, so for someone who's maybe not acknowledging that they need help, motivational interviewing may be a better technique. Um, for capability and like changing the way you think, CBT, um, they said for limited cognitive abilities or lower education, a 12-step or like AA may be more helpful. I know you said like AA, there's like a component of the religious like AA is really trying to take that out and say, like, they say that they're spiritual, not religious. I didn't find any other 12-step program that, I know you'd mentioned it, but. I can't remember what it's called. There's another, it's maybe, maybe it's not a 12-step, but there's another, I guess it's like AA in a, in a group type setting, but they don't use the, the, the higher power thing. Okay. And so people who can't really get into the idea of a higher power, because that really is a big philosophy in the AA, in the AA treatment, that they are trying to get away from God and religion, but they mm -hmm. still do require you to have like this belief in the higher power that higher power can be nature it can be yourself right it can be like you know like the, uh, your your kids right your family all these higher power things but you have to have that higher power thing to incorporate the 12 steps okay. um, and then there's like facilities like residential treatment facilities they offer like a 24-hour substance-free environment um, they all have different I mean these are usually like commercially run um, so they all have a different kind of criteria or like program that they offer. Um, there's inpatient settings, which have been shown to be good for going through withdrawal. That way you're monitored by a doctor for 24 hours. Um, or people who have like comorbid medical conditions versus like an outpatient rehab, which will be good for patients who maybe have work or family responsibilities. 
but again, those are all just commercially run usually, so it's hard to like figure out what's really being offered. There's no like standard protocol in any of these facilities. So I think ultimately it's just figuring out which one's going to work best with your lifestyle um, and that you're going to be successful in. Yeah. It's always the conundrum of like, we're going to ask, what's the best antipsychotic to use? The best antipsychotic to use is the best is the one the patient will take, yeah. right? And so honestly, that comes down a little bit to that, that, that what is the patient willing and able to do? It's going to be the best treatment. And it's always, we're going to try as much as we can, a combination of medications with, with psychosocial interventions because we know in psychiatry, the combination almost always works better than, than just one alone. So we're all going to try to, to use both of them together. A big barrier to access to these types of treatments, right, these, these more... Uh, involved levels of care like the the rehabs right the 30 60 90 day programs and all that stuff is cost mm-hmm. um, if you are well to do you can get really really good treatment for substance use really good treatment right and if you want to pay for it if you can't pay for it you can't really get a whole lot of treatment um, none of these programs I think take Medicare and Medicaid um, which makes, yeah, for, for which a huge po- population of individuals who are battling substance use disorders don't have access to those tools, which is rough. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Guys, it. that was awesome. Good work. Any last, I guess we're going to go final thoughts, go around. Um, my final takeaway, um, I'm just going to stick with what I just kind of said with my final takeaway that a combination of, of psychosocial interventions and medications is going to always most likely be the key for, for psychiatric disorders, right? We want to, try, we want to get our patients to buy into both. Um, too often, I think people just want to take the magic pill. That doesn't work, right? That is not a real thing, even in the world of depression or whatever else. You've got to do the whole, all the work to get the, the results. So I'd say we've got to push our patients to do, to do the full intervention. Uh, my takeaway is that I think just like the like pathophysiology of this is so complex and I don't know multifaceted treatment also needs to be so like we were just talking about medication um, and um, psychosocial interventions um, but I think even you know looking bigger at you know what are I don't know, public health things looking at environment different legislation because it really is a an issue that is widespread and has a lot of moving parts 100 percent good point yeah i think for me i have a lot of family members and close friends that struggle with this so i just think realizing this is a lifelong problem and um, many times there's not going to be one treatment that's going to work right away and work for the rest of their lives so i think really as future physicians like decreasing attitude and stigma towards these people because as you know as we just went through the whole neurobiology is an addiction um it's a lot outside of their control so i think just being supportive in the best way we can is how like how we can help them such a good point and when you can't be the physician who sees this patient the 10th time in a row and start to get frustrated and lose control right like these people are going to need treatment over and over and over and over again mm-hmm. until it sticks, right? And we have to support them through that and realize that is the pathway, right? We don't have a better way to do it right now, so. Yeah, I guess uh, for me, uh, kind of, like I said, it's, it's a medical illness, you know, um, and, you know, relapse is, like I say, relapse is part of recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's not get discouraged when people relapse. And like I said, just make sure that you're always compassionate because, um, People are not choosing to want to have addiction. It's a, it's an actual 
kind of rewiring the brain chemistry as we went through is very complex issue, like like Weston was saying. Um, I guess like one thing that's kind of positive though is I think there's so many areas to explore for further treatments. Uh, and so while we don't have, uh, you know, we have kind of modest benefit uh, for current medications that maybe, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, we'll have uh, much more like maybe we'll find out psilocybin really is uh, just a, a very effective treatment or maybe like neuropeptide YY or, uh, or CRF. Uh, so despite the kind of downside of, you know, lack of access to treatment and stuff, I think there are some things to be helpful for people suffering with um, alcohol use disorder. 100%. I think in general, the theme of psychiatry is right now, like, things are coming down the pipeline, right? It's kind of an exciting time to be a psychiatrist, to be, you know, a student interested in psychiatry, because I think we're going to have some cool stuff on the horizon. Absolutely. With that being said, team, team out. out.